This episode of Punk Rock HR is sponsored by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head on over to thestarconspiracy.com. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome back to Punk Rock HR. My guest this week is Dr. Nikki Coleman. Dr. Nikki is a licensed psychologist with experience in race and culture and sexuality, but most importantly, she is a force in this world for living your life differently. So if you're interested in a really deep conversation about feeling better, about operating better, not as a worker, but as a human being, as an individual, about actually feeling joy, well, sit back and enjoy this really awesome conversation with Dr. Nikki. Hey, Dr. Nikki, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Well, I'm so pleased that you're here. You know, you've got an interesting background, which brings you to the podcast. You're a licensed psychologist with deep knowledge in race and culture and sexuality and organizational change. So before we get into those four quadrants, why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you're all about? I am Dr. Nikki. I'm a licensed psychologist, as you just said. I am a recovering academic. So I was <laughs> was a tenured professor for the vast majority of my career, about 17 years, across three different universities. I left the University of Houston in 2019. And then I made the leap from academia to DEI space in corporate healthcare and ran into some challenges in that space <laughs> and then decided I was going to finally branch out out and do my own thing. And so now I have a business. It's Dr. Nikki Knows because I know a lot of stuff. And there's two sides. There's a therapy side because I'm a clinician. I love working with folks. And particularly, I work with Black women and couples who are experiencing relational or sexual issues. And then there's other side that does racial equity training and consultation with small to mid-sized organizations. And it all makes sense in my mind because (laughs) (laughs) because so much of our lived experience experiences are really sort of influenced by the social structures. And we live in a country in which there's a lot of inequalities and inequities around those social structures that you really can't evolve as a human being without having some significant influence on those structures and who you are and how you are. And I'm I'm a therapist, so I'm a psychologist that is particularly interested in change. And so that's what I do. I love it. I love it all. Well, I'm fascinated by a therapist who goes through her own pivot. And you mentioned that your pivot happened around 2019. You've had a few, right? With your desire to move out of academia into corporate America and then from corporate America to being an entrepreneur. So you did all of that during a pandemic. So you made it 50% harder on yourself. So what was that journey like for you? Yeah. So in both decisions to pivot, what happened was the context, the circumstances just became really untenable for me that the decision about how I wanted to show up in the world, who I am as a person, what my integrity is, what my values are, just was completely incongruent with each of those spaces. And I tried to navigate that tension for as long as possible until I was like, it's either going to be me or the organization. And and I'm going to choose me every time. And and I 
will say the leap from academia to corporate healthcare was easier because I had a job lined up. I had an offer lined up. I didn't have to change too much of my life because it was also here in Houston. There was a pay grade and it kind of made sense. And then when I got in the space, there were things about me that were, um, which I really sort of hate this word, but too radical for the space. And they didn't quite know what to do with me. (laughs) (laughs) They weren't willing to do what I needed them to do for me to feel good and safe in the space. And so that was a bigger decision to make in the pandemic to decide, am I going to actually launch a whole business? I'm a full-time single parent. I'm a whole person I'm responsible for. And I was mid forties, like solidly mid forties. And I was like, I feel like I have made dumb career choices. Like this is not the time that people make big pivots. But again, it just really felt like I had no other choice for my own well-being, my own sense of integrity, but to make these decisions. You know, that speaks to me because while that pivot in your mid-40s may surprise you, corporate America is losing women and women of color in their mid-40s because these women are like, what did I survive a pandemic for? What am I doing all this hard work for only to be in a system that doesn't appreciate me? And I might as well drive my 10-year-old car for a few more years and have more time with my family or whatever the choices are, but they're no longer willing to just work for that paycheck and put up with the structure that doesn't benefit them. On top of that so much of the world of DEI is nonsense. It's garbage. And it doesn't put a smart, educated woman like you in a position for success. So do you resonate with any of that? I resonate with all of it. So without getting into all of the details, I will say like specifically what happened was I was tasked with doing anti-racism work in the organization. And then when I started to make white folks uncomfortable in the organization, I was told by the DEI leadership that you need to stop making them uncomfortable. And I said, I refuse to erase myself. And I refuse refuse to misrepresent what this work is. You asked me to do anti-racism work. You didn't ask me to talk about racial prejudice or discrimination. And the can is open. I'm not going back in. Well, wait, that's a really interesting distinction. So can you talk about anti-racist work, anti-racism work versus traditional DEI classes that we make people take? What's the difference? Yeah. So the DEI stuff, is like, it feels good. The I part is like, everybody's inclusive. Everything about diversity matters. Everything is the same. That equity piece, oftentimes, really means equality. It's not about the equity piece, which is a different conversation. And so the anti-racism work is about radical transformation. It's about owning that there are policies and practices in place that uphold a particular worldview around white supremacy. And that if we're going to have an environment that is one that facilitates an equitable space for people across racial dimensions. Some people are going to have to acknowledge that they have racial privilege and maybe even possibly do something different, right? You may have to reallocate some spaces, right? And it was really frustrating for me because when I was confronted and directly confronted about the work that I was doing, I said, okay, well, let's take a step back and recognize that the organization is not ready for this work. Let's pull back. Let's address where we are. Let's talk about giving some of these white folks in leadership some more support. Let's have some more interracial dialogues. Let's do some of the more coaching around these skills to then get us to that place. And that was not even an option put on the table. And frankly, like Lori, I was like, you're losing somebody with an amazing skill set. For sure. Yeah. What strikes me, though, is that in order to do some of this anti-racist work, we have to acknowledge that most of capitalism is built on racism, right? So we're talking about foundational core work and saying, okay, we're trying to find a new way to navigate in a 
world where we accept capitalism, but we no longer stand for denigrating other human beings. For a lot of people, they're like, well, shit, I don't want to lose my job, right? You know, so it's funny. We have a common friend in Zach Nunn and Zach and I are like, "Mm, I don't know where this is going to all end up, right? I feel like sometimes we just need to burn it all down and start over again. But I don't know. Where do you come out on that? So, you know, the burn it all down feels it's easier said than done. That's for sure. I think I think there is a space in the middle, but I think even the space in the middle feels extremely threatening to folks because whenever you start talking about equity, you were talking about redistribution of resources and nobody wants lesser resources. Like even if you have an awareness that you have amassed more than you could ever possibly need in a lifetime and that is fair to anyone else, the idea of letting it go is just I don't know. I don't know how to make people do that. And I do think what it requires is us to build new systems. What I am particularly hopeful about and and sort of invigorated about is I do see more common discourse about the human experience in the world of work. I think the piece you brought up earlier about women in their mid 40s making different decisions, right? There's this recognition like, oh no, I am a human being. I'm not a machine. And in my humanness, there are parts of myself I really want to value and honor. And I can't do that if I keep doing things the same way. You know, revolution never happens nearly as quickly as we want it to. But I do think we're moving in the right direction. Like even to hear Gen Z folks talk openly about mental health concerns and burnout and neurodiversity, like openly for there to be critiques about what is professionalism and how do we define it? I think that's a way better conversation to be in that can lead us to creating more holistically whole, healthy, equitable environments environments than trying to really transform the ones that already exist. Mm, that's a real good, healthy, political <laughs> take on all of that. <laughs> I mean, you're right. Burning stuff down often doesn't benefit the people who need it the most because then there's nothing available. But I hear from so many individuals like, oh, you want to redistribute wealth. Let Jeff Bezos go first or let Richard Branson go first. Oh, yeah. I'm totally down, like both and, right? And so I think my response is more practical, right? Like Richard Branson is not going to like, that's not going to happen. Jeff Bezos, what's the supervillain guy's name? I can't, um, Tesla, Elon Musk. Like he's a supervillain in real life. Like if our change movements are contingent upon those people having enlightenment or doing something different, we will stay stuck. So we can openly criticize them and talk about the harm. And I, I do think they create harm in lots of real ways. And we also have to talk about, there's a whole lot of folks whose everyday life is just really centered on survival. And it's really almost inequitable and unfair to ask them to let go of what they already have in service of a broader movement, right? I think it's better served for those of us with some degree of privilege and power, of which I recognize I have some, right? I have, I definitely have marginalized identities. Being a Black woman is a whole mood. It's a whole experience. And I'm highly educated. I'm solidly middle class. I have access to resources. I have relationships with folks that have more resources that I can leverage, right? So I have greater responsibility in how I use all of those than for those folks to which I'm related, like related to many of them, connected to many of them to think about like burning it all down. (laughs) Right, right. You're totally fair. Your pathway is practical. My pathway of burning it down actually comes from a position of privilege because I'm like, I'm going to be fine no matter what, right? You burn this down, I'm going to be okay. But there's real damage in a revolution that's reckless. Although I like to dream about it all the time, Dr. Like, that I is, think that's my yeah. Thing. So I got introduced to this concept, emergent strategy, from Adrienne Marie Brown. Adrienne Marie Brown is a Black queer woman organizer who's done. 
one work for her entire life. And she wrote this book that's sort of this blueprint about how do we create a whole new, healthy, whole, integrated way of being. And it's called Emergent Strategy. And reading that book really reframed a lot of my burn it all down thinking. And one of her primary concepts is like, change on the small is going to be reflected on the big. And so if we continue to do this work for ourselves, we continue to have these conversations, it does create change. The bigger has to automatically at some point represent that. And for me, that was really critically important for me to have hope, right? Because, you know, when the 2020 election results, first of all, the whole debacle around that was like, what reality is this? But for me, it was that the margin of win was as slim as it was. Like, that to me is more frightening than the more obvious insurrectionist, crazy people sort of things, right? Which has been true for me my whole life. Like crazy white supremacist that goes to a meeting in the woods with their rifles. Yeah, that's threatening. That's scary. But really the people that are more threatening to me are the folks that are in the office right next door to me or the people that I am at the grocery store with who secretly harbor all of these really horrible thoughts about me, don't recognize my humanity because I have to interact with them more. And so I need to think about how do we engage the white liberal? How do we get people aware to their own sort of internalized classism? And how do we learn to sort of divest from that? To me, that feels way more productive (laughs) than thinking about like burning it all down. It's happening anyway. I mean, we have no democracy. It's in name only. So we're getting there. We are. But I like your optimism around Gen Z. And I think one of the interesting things about your body of work is that intersection of humanity around culture and even of sexuality. Because, you know, you're right. This conversation about being human first is so important. And, you know, I've dedicated my life to telling people, I know you're having a career crisis, but it's not about work. It's about yourself and and fixing air quotes yourself, right? And that's the work that you do. You're focused on relationship. You're focused on sexuality and getting people, especially in marginalized communities, to feel good and whole so that they can take that good stuff out into the world. Am I representing your work correctly? You get it perfectly. One of my catchphrases is, if it's not giving joy and pleasure, what's the point? Like we could burn it all down and then what? Like if I don't feel good, if I don't have access to things that allow me to feel safe and comfortable and even experience erotic pleasure, what's the point? Like to just create another system that is focused on production, that's focused on sort of a blandness. No, I want my revolution to include sexual eroticism. I want it to include access to pleasure as a foundational concept. I want it to include access to rest and restoration to my fallibility as a human. Like it needs to include all of that. Otherwise I'm not interested. You know, that's so fascinating because when we do hear conversations around well-being, first of all, they're superficial. And second of all, it's like around getting enough to eat, but eating healthy, right? Getting some sleep. Clean and eating. Ever, yes. And like a 5K ever solved anything, right? You know? <laughs> and I love this focus on human sexuality. You know, so many of us for years defined ourselves by our job description and we forget that we like to be loved and to express love, right? That's a conversation we never have in well-being. No, like the well-being industry is another industry, right? This is where the intersection of capitalism. And I also think like white supremacy to an extent, because most of the sort of wellness practices that are most promoted have been co-opted from long-standing cultures and, and traditions, right? The whole yoga industry is like, are you kidding me? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sure, there are people who love yoga, but like for the average human being, like what's that about? You're absolutely right. And that is absolutely an expression of power over some people. So yeah. 100 It's to be able to say like, oh, there's this thing that's shiny and new and different and I like it and I'm going to take it for myself because I feel like 
second, right? But no, this access to pleasure, it's just really so non-negotiable for me because otherwise we're just really, for me, I don't understand an anti-capitalist movement that doesn't include pleasure. Because the missing piece is the humanity, right? Like, I need to feel good to want to keep getting up every day to come do this shit that you're asking me to do. I'm sorry. I, I don't know if you're, oh, if you you're can, listening. Yeah, please, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to do this shit you're asking me to do, right? Because, you know, even I, I was uh, telling my daughter this the other day. Like, I love what I'm doing. I'm building my life on my own manifestation and vision. And that is extremely powerful. I love every project and endeavor I have chosen because I have fully chosen it. And there's shit that I got to do that I don't like, like responding to emails or making sure I get back to people in a timely way or like doing payroll stuff. That is not fun. Like, <laughs> no, where I clearly fail at that kind of stuff. But you know, I'm fa- it's funny that we're talking about this because I fail at all that administrative stuff, but I also fail often at that pleasure piece. And I think one of the ways I failed early was thinking about pleasure in a very sexist, patriarchal kind of way. I mean, when we talk about pleasure in our society, it's often pornographic, right? It's the pleasure of penetration. It's the pleasure of, you know, succumbing. And like, as I get older, I'm tired of that. Yeah. Well, so there's this whole thing called the orgasm, orgasm inequality. You may have had heard of like orgasm gap, right? Tell me more. Oh my gosh. Yes. So there's like tons of research that has asked women, heterosexual women in specific, So let me back up and say there's studies that have asked people about sexual satisfaction, about frequency of orgasm, about types of access of stimulation and touch to orgasm, right? So the question asked a lots of different ways by different folks. And every time when you look at the data, heterosexual men are having orgasms pretty much 9.5 times out of 10 and heterosexual women are having orgasms about six and a half, sometimes even half out of 10. And it's because there is this over-focus on one, ejaculation, which means penis, which means like, that's not our thing. And the crazy part is even when you look at women who identify as lesbian, there's still a gap. So there's all of this stuff in our socialization around femininity and womanhood and what that means as relational beings and our unapologetic decision that we are required to have pleasure that gets in the way. I always ask folks to think about the inverse. Could you imagine a world in which five out of 10 men that you've met said, well, I have sex with my partner, but I don't always come. Hell no. Like that's not even a concept that we can wrap our brains around. And yet we have this very real phenomenon that that happens for women all the time. You know, and it's so fascinating because we kind of understand men's sexuality, especially as they rise within corporate America. We understand, even though it's probably not true, that a CEO has got, you know, a partner, most likely a woman, and he's getting it on all the time and he's eating steak, right? But the moment we start to think about women as beings who can accept pleasure and experience pleasure, right? We don't think of them as executives. We don't think of them. And I can't even imagine what it's like for women who aren't part of this descriptor of heterosexual, right? Lesbian, you know, anybody who's a trans woman, right? We don't want to think about work and pleasure in the same kind of way. It just gets all messy, right? So this statistic is so fascinating for me because it comes back to that point that you made, like, what am I working so hard for if I'm not enjoying life? Is that a conversation you have on repeat? On repeat. So in my practice, I do individual couples therapy and coaching. And by and large, my practice are high achieving Black women. And I have to have this conversation all of the time, in part because there's so much of the external world and the structures of the external world that 
tell them the exact opposite. You need to be useful. You need to be productive. You need to be successful in all these indicators. And then the, and it's like the, and then doesn't even get filled out. And so there's a whole set of identity characteristics around success and worthiness around all of those things that happens at a very early age. And there's this whole other part of themselves, this other like core around like, what do you do for you just because you want to do it for you? You haven't earned it. You haven't worked for it. It's something that feels good. And I'm not talking about a piece of dark chocolate before you go to bed at night. I'm talking about the real shit that you would be like, if I could say F the world to everybody, I want this to have happened. Do you even dream about that? Do you even know what the answer to that is? And then how do you then begin to create a life that gets you closer and closer and closer to that? So I have conversations all the time that your worthiness is not contingent upon perfection. I have to say that mantra over and over again. Your worthiness is not contingent upon your perfection and you have pleasure as your birthright, period. There's nothing that anyone can do to take that away from you. I can't imagine how a high functioning woman with any background can hear that and not just go, oh, I need that, right? We don't get that from anything in our society. I have a conversation all the time that your work is not your worth, but then there's this big gap. And your question of what is it that you're doing to feel pleasure? What is it that you're doing? And it's not dependent on anything. It's your birthright. It's like the right way to steer this conversation. But then how do you find that? Where do you go to find what you enjoy? Like, how do you take people on that journey? Yeah. So the first part is acknowledging that no one is going to give it to you. So (laughs) you do need to find it. And two, that you get to play. Like part of a human experience is playfulness. That means there's error. There means that you try things out. That means you get to be awkward and uncomfortable. That means you get to change your mind. This is why this concept around perfection, right? And it's not about production, that it's an exploration process. I really encourage folks to get curious about yourself. What is that little thing that you once thought like, oh, I used to really sort of be into blah, 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 but that's whatever. Like, let's go back to that. Let's get curious about that. I do a lot of stuff around like embodiment. So even when I start talking about this stuff, what is getting activated in your body? Are you feeling tension anywhere? Is any part of you feeling excited? Where is that coming from? What could we connect to? What are your senses already telling you? Are you a person that's sort of like, oh, I want to go to Bath and Body Works and smell all the candles? Are you a person that's like, my sheets must be 1,000 threads? Like we can start to use all of these things that you really sort of have benign access to. And then we want to just go full throttle and explode and invest in all of that and explore all of that. You know, I can see how this would be risky if you're a black woman or you're a member of the LGBTQ plus community, right? Like you have to have a Sherpa, you have to have a guide, you have to have someone giving you space and helping you brainstorm ideas, right? Because this is not something that society gives you permission to do. No, not at all. And the beauty of my clientele is like they are across the spectrum. So they're across the age spectrum, they're across the gender spectrum, they're across the sexual orientation spectrum and the conversations remain the same, which is really fascinating because when you start talking about patriarchy, it really takes sexual orientation off the table because we're all negatively impacted by patriarchy. Including men. I Including think men. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. 100%. I have, a, I have a couple male clients that I see individually. And interestingly enough, they come to me through the lens of like racial trauma work. Like they have experienced racial stress in the workplace and they want to work through that. And then I start to pull in my other stuff about 
about joy and pleasure. And they're like, what? What's this about? <laughs> but actually, most of the women come to me because they hear me saying these things, right? A lot of my marketing happens on my social media platforms and people come to me and almost to a person, they're like, I saw this post and you said this and I was like, you were talking to me or people are in my DMs. Like, thank you so much. You don't understand how much even the questions you're asking make me just experience myself differently. And this is why the work is really important because there's nothing in our lives that creates accountability. The inertia is to go to bed, get up, get the kids up, pack the lunches, drop off, go to work, do the thing, come home, maybe have a glass of wine, maybe have a date night, maybe go to, I don't know, a vacation a couple times a year and that's it. And I am so anti that. Like, I'm so anti that. So I, well, I do there's nothing worse than a date night that's planned and stressed about. Like, that's not fun. You know, like, it's just it's not you, fun. No. Or that feels obligatory, right? Like, well, we're doing this because we say we got to do it. No. Yeah, there's no pleasure in the programmatic way that we tend to operate. You know, as we start to wrap up the conversation, I want to give our wonderful listeners a sense of what you're passionate about for the rest of the year, for 2023, where your business is going. Like, what are you thinking about? I mean, you must be thinking about all of these topics but the world is still kind of crazy. The world is very, very crazy. So the things that I'm passionate about is actually I've launched a small group coaching program called Pleasure Pursuers. And it's around walking women through this journey of like, what are these internalized narratives that you have that really aren't yours, but you sort of swallowed them wholesale? How do we help you unpack them? What tools do you need to sort of make different choices in your life to start living a life that centers joy and pleasure? And so I'm super excited about that. Like, it's so good. Like, I literally, I was going to bed last night. I was like, I'm so fucking proud of myself. This is awesome. (laughs) So that's one of the things that I'm really passionate about and looking forward to. And then there's this other thing. So there's this whole movement, at least on social media, with Black women talking about living their soft life. And it really is like a rebellion against all of the things that we're talking about. And so one of the other things is I'm developing a soft life retreat. I want to start as a virtual retreat first. And I think the three components of a soft life are authenticity, boundaries and self-compassion. And I want to talk to women about what does that mean? What does that look like for you? And how do you start to practice those things? Oh, that is wonderful work. I'm so yeah, excited. I'm excited. Yeah. Like what a job, Like you know, you really built something for yourself that not only, you know, has great potential financially, but it's just so needed in the world. And, you know, the one thing that I was thinking about as we were talking today is I need more time to fuck around and find out. You know, like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like this is exactly what I needed this conversation. So I'm so pleased that we had a chance to connect. And Dr. Nikki, we'll make sure we have all of your good stuff on the show notes. So thanks for being a guest. Thank you so much. It was a great time for me. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Punk Rock HR. We are proudly underwritten by the Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head on over to thestarconspiracy.com. Punk Rock HR is produced and edited by RepCap with special help from Michael Thibodeau and Devin McGrath. For more information, show notes, links, and resources, head on over to punkrockhr.com. Now that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR.